Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, we have Gerald Leonard, author of Workplace Jazz. I, I just love the name of the book and the cover. And when I saw it, I thought, oh, I got to have this guy on my show. <laughs> <laughs> so and he's so cool. So, uh, Gerald, uh, welcome uh, to the show. Please tell us about your background, about your musical skills, especially the instrument you play. Okay, so I am a, a bass player, and um, I got started when I was 10 years old. And I tell the story in my book when I would sneak into my sister's room and grab her guitar and hide in the closet and play it. She didn't know I wanted to play it. And so I had to sneak and play it because I was learning the piano, but I didn't really want to play the piano. I wanted to play the guitar. So I eventually started doing that, joined the band with some friends, and one of them was an amazing guitar player. And so I was that I became the bass player for the group. And I realized that being the bass player, I had to... You know, learn the foundation of the song, learn the, the the structure of the song, and I. But I fell in love with it, and it was at a time where, um, in Lakeland, Florida, where the Lakeland Civic Center started. So all of the major bands, whether it was the Buddy Rich Orchestra or Earth, Wind and Fire or the OJ's or or Aerosmith, you could go and see them for little or nothing as a kid, and that just inspired me. And I did my bachelor's at Central State University. I ended up studying at Cincinnati Conservatory. I did my master's in music and even spent a year through the Manhattan School of Music with David Walter Juilliard, played professionally in New York and um, also did some ministry work for a few years. And uh, after I had kids, I realized I didn't want to be on the road. And that's when I got into IT and I started doing both. I started playing music locally and did IT. And the whole idea of beginning to see the synergy between music teams and business teams begin to come to light. And it really informed a lot of what I did. And But my music background informed how I approach going into business, learning computers, learning software, and all the things that I do in business. Well, my see my girlfriend has joined here also is listening to you. And she's a Juilliard grad. And like you, she used math and science uh, and puts all those together. Uh, and that helps her music tremendously. Exactly. So let's talk about um, why did you write this book and focus on jazz and why the title Workplace Jazz? Well, Workplace Jazz, I have to give credit to where credit is due. That started with my literary agent. And here's why. I wrote a book called Culture is the Base. Um, that was my first book. It was a self-published book. And then I started working on another book called Building a Symphonic Company Culture. And once he saw the, he, uh, I met him through uh, a group with Jack Canfield and Steve Harrison. And once he saw the book, he loved it. But he goes, that's been done before. Or that I've, I've kind of heard that title before. And he goes, I looked at your background and you're this jazz musician, classical musician. What do you think about this idea of workplace jazz? So he actually came up with the title. And he had, and, but he was also the literary agent for Jim Collins. So at that time I said, hey, uh, 40 years in the industry, you work with Jim Collins, workplace jazz it is. 
<laughs> I wasn't going to argue with him. And uh, everyone I talk, told about that, the, the, the book, love the idea, love the title. I do. And I like the symbol right behind you and so forth uh, when you're yeah. talking here. Yeah, I thought that was great. And I thought, especially for people who are in the music and they really understand the the blend of music and how it fits in the business and, and jazz in particular, um, because it's very entrepreneurial. Uh, it, jazz. it really is. It really is. You make up the structure as you go along, right? Well, you make, well, you have the structure of the song in place. But then everyone comes to the table, let's say the bass player, the piano player, the guitar player, the trumpet player, horn player, singers or whoever's in the group. And you're following a pattern. So let's say you play the melody and the, and the form of the song. And then everyone takes a turn interpreting the way they would like to play the music. But everyone else has to really stop and listen. So no matter how great a bass player you are, your job is to support the entire organization, to support the group, and to really listen in and support them and help them um, and until it's your time to perform or, or solo. And then you, you go about and you solo. But again, everyone is there. There's this constant ebb and flow and exchange of ideas, um, which makes jazz, It's there's a roadmap and a structure, but there's a lot of improvisation fluidity that's what i was meant yes. yeah improvisation so what what are you hoping the readers will get out of this book before we actually jump into the book itself well you know the thing that i think about is that at this point in time it really requires a new style of leadership you know we're going through the pandemic and all of the upheaval that we are facing not only in the united states but across the world and I thought about it as I was writing a book and, you know, it's either a band leader or a conductor. It really requires corporate executives, managers and leaders to think more like a band leader or a conductor. Well, what do, what do I mean by that? Uh, a conductor is someone who is a musician himself and they've actually mastered a, an instrument. So they understand what it takes to, to really learn uh, an instrument, but they trust that the, the musicians in their band have put in the time and effort to master or grow themselves in, with their instrument. And their job is to get everyone to play together, to cast a big vision of where you want the group to go, and then to really uh, use their inspiration to kind of get everyone to play together and orchestrate that group to really play together more than micromanaging or kind of, you know, um, management by walking around of telling people what to do or treating them like worker bees. They have to treat them like artists. Well, it's funny you should say that because I think don't people always say about business uh, leaders um, that they are uh, orchest they're orchestrating or they're the orchestra leader of the business or, well, they or really something are. like Yeah. I mean, they always use musical terms to describe leadership. Uh it's kind of funny because I guess because um, music has been around essentially longer than organized business. Yes. And so people always say that. Exactly. So let's jump in. How does music enhance your brain function? I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, you know, based on my research, music does something that, that even when I wrote the book in my research, I learned that um, that really struck me. And I stepped back after I learned it and realized that, wow, this is really true. Music promotes whole brain integration. Now, what do I mean by whole brain integration? When you're learning music, music allows your brain, your right brain, your left brain hemispheres to work together through what's called the corpus callosum. And so your brain begins to function at a higher rate. But at the same time, what whole brain integration means is that your brain 
kind of slows down from the standpoint of it speeds up as far as processing power, but you're able to take a lot more in. It increases your capacity to take things in. And the only way I can explain the impact of that is something that happened to me in 2018. I had a major bout with vertigo. Now, vertigo, you know, is one of those things that, you know, the room spins and so on and so forth. Well, that happened, but it went way past that, where I was rushed to the hospital for a day and a half. Um, they had to give me drugs for, to, for it to stop. And when it was all said and done, I left the hospital and I walked, I left in a walker because it impacted what's called the vestibular system. It impacted my right inner ear nerve by 86%. In other words, I had only 14% capability in my right inner ear nerve. I'm laying there in bed for a week trying to figure out. Plus, I have a TEDx talk that I've been approved to give. Uh -huh. And I'm thinking, how am I going to do this TEDx talk? And I started thinking about my uh, my talk. And I, in the talk, I talk about the neuroscience of music. And the talk was called What If Practices the Performance? And in that, it said that you know, if you have a brain injury and you're a musician and you activate your brain through music, it'll figure out how to work around that damaged area of the network and rebuild itself. So I started playing. As soon as I could get up and start playing, that's what I did. And within three weeks, I literally walked into my doctor's office for my first ear, nose and throat appointment. And when he found out I was a musician, he said, you already started your therapy. And so the brain, so being a musician was a gift for me. And it really helped me to realize I had something to share with the world that really could impact people's lives in an amazing way. And the only other way to get that uh, whole brain integration is through meditation. Many, many years of meditation. Yeah, I, I was wondering, what was the TED Talk that you gave? It's, uh, it was a talk on what if practice is the performance. And the whole idea there is every day when you're a professional musician, even if you're an orchestra musician, let's say you're performing... Uh, rehearsing, um, let's say five or six times a week, and you're performing four or five times a week. That's only ninety. That's only five percent of the time that you're out, right? The other ninety-five percent of your time, you're spent living your life and practicing. So, if you're spending ninety-five percent of your time getting ready to perform, then you basically have to love the process of practicing. Because if the performance goes bad, then the, the joy of playing, you, you're going to miss it. And so really it's about if the practice is a performance, then every day is, a, is embracing that journey of learning the instrument, performing, growing, developing, so that when you do perform, you're just sharing something that you love to do. It's not that big of a deal anymore. Well, in sports, they're always saying that that's the case, right? You know, if you exactly. really don't enjoy the practice part of it, you know, the you easy part the should be the game. The exactly. easy part should be the game. Exactly. I mean, think about football players. They play, they play one hour a week, but they're in practice the rest of the week. Right. So if you don't love to practice and get your game up at a high level in practice, it's never going to happen on the field during a real live game. Well, we have a question from the audience, and I always intersperse these questions in with yeah. the questions that you already know I'm going to ask you. What sort of uh, meditation? Uh, many musicians practice transcendental uh, meditation. Do you do that? And do you know musicians who do? I do know musicians that do practice transcendental meditation. The kind of meditation I practice, I use, um, I use musical tools. So there's something called hollow sync. There's something also called by Dr. Paul uh, Shevlitz called uh, paraliminals. 
where it basically allows you to listen to music that is set at a frequency of like the alpha wave or and then it takes you down to theta and delta waves. And it really, really quickly synchronizes your brain down to a level of meditating as if you had been meditating for a long period of time. But it basically calms the brain down, puts you in a really great learning state. And it's a great place to spend time visualizing your goals, visualizing your performance, visualizing what you want. Because once you do that, you're actually reprogramming your brain. And not only are you reprogramming your brain, you're reprogramming every cell in your body to go after what you want. And so meditating and visualizing are huge for musicians, for anyone who wants to be a high performer. It's required. And we're going to talk about that because you have that in your book as well. Yes. Uh, another follow-up question to that uh, from the audience is, are those related to the Monroe Institute? Are those related to the Monroe Institute? Um, I'm not familiar with the Monroe Institute. Sorry about that. Uh, a lot of my research I've done with like, you know, Harvard Business Review or Mayo Clinic or things like that or NIH. Um, but if it's, any, if it's a peer-reviewed, I'll put it this way, if it's a peer-reviewed institute that is talking about meditation, then I would say yes. Because what I try to do in my research is I only leverage content that is peer-reviewed where there's other researchers or professors or scientists that review the uh, the person's articles. Yes, I see. I think somebody says alpha, um, uh, sound uses generated alpha beta. Yes, yep. it will be the same concept. Okay. So, um, you know, we always know what leaders learn from sports because every leader practically uses sports metaphors when they're talking. But what can business leaders learn from music? And, I, and I, it kind of goes back to the understanding that music is one of the liberal arts are, and provides a full education. Right? It provides a full education in how um, we learn, how we grow. But it also allows us to see that um, our team members are now much more like uh, have the temperament of professional musicians. And so with music, um, to be good at it, you have to work on your craft on a daily basis. Um, you have to um, you, you have to get feedback from, and you have to find models. So there's a lot of different things from not only just the study of music, of you know studying the notes and the characters and the composers and things like that, but also prepare, preparing and learning how to perform at a, a contemporary level. There's so many more models and examples that we can follow even today that we can learn from as leaders. And but you can do that. You can take that same model into any industry and use it the same way. Again, I use those same concepts that I use as a musician that when I was trained as a musician, I used them in business because when I got into computers and other parts of business, I look for models. I look for coaches. I look for instructors. I look for material that was going to help me go to the next level. Uh, can music therapy help a neurodiverse community, like autistic community, perform better in their job? Yes, definitely. I would definitely say yes. And, and, and it's, it's not just any music. You want to have music that is um, written in a way that, again, it's kind of like the, uh, the, the Mayo Clinic or the, the uh, the clinic that the gentleman brought, or institute that the gentleman brought the up. The Monroe Institute. Where, yeah, the Monroe Institute, thank you. Where where it is focused on, you know, alpha, delta, theta waves um, that really puts the brain in a place of a meditative state. 
Um, and it's also something that's called biannual rhythms or beats where they have beats that come into the left ear and into the right ear that are different, but it forces the brain to balance those, those beats out. And it forces cross uh, uh, hemisphere communication. And again, all of that has a major and a massive impact on our, um, on our neurological um, status. So uh, why do, and you have this in the, in your book, why do 95% yeah. of human resource leaders admit employee burnout? Well, what's going on there? Well, you know, in that study, um, and I love the questions that you provided, uh, but in that study, um, they really went back and looked at, well, you know, in this research survey that we're doing, you know, what is that real cause that's causing the HR leaders to say that 95% of the people are experiencing burnout? And one was they felt that compensation was unfair, right? So that was one of those things that came out of the survey. They surveyed about 693 different organizations and leaders and, and people. Um, the unreasonable workload was another one, as well as poor management. And what they found was that people felt like they were they were being asked to work too many hours without giving real direction or support. And they were just kind of like, you know, do more, you know, especially I think even when the pandemic happened and, and just look at what's happening in the medical field where they're exhausted, right? And it's it's, unreasonable work hours, it's the stress and strain, but it happens across many other industries, but it was happening in a lot of other industries even before the pandemic that those things were happening. And so it was really taxing workers. And so there needs to be, a, again, a new way of thinking about uh, how to handle productivity, how to increase productivity, but also taking into consideration the neurological impact of that there's a way to do that and reduce stress. Uh, you write about the benefits of being agile. Uh, where right. are they? And is there one that is truly unique? Well, a lot of the benefits of agile is agile thinking um, helps an organization with this uh, return on investment in the way that they're able to get things done and out to market much faster. They're able to deliver and um, and address and handle uncertainty in a way that in a, that they couldn't if they weren't agile or nimble in their thinking in their process. Um, they're also able to be more creative. They're able to unleash uh, creativity and innovation because again, they're looking at things and they're planning in short spurts and they're, they're dealing with real time information and able to make adjustments without being committed to a long term strategy or plan that this is how we're going to, how we're going to get it done. But they're, they have a larger goal, but they're incrementally planning things out um, as well as they hold each other accountable because they meet daily. It boosts performance and it helps them to be a lot more effective and reliable. And when I think about which one is most important, honestly, I believe it's the, the fact that we hold each other accountable. When you're meeting on a daily basis with a team and you're asking the questions of, hey, what did you do yesterday? What did you do today? Are there any impediments? And you're, you're sharing that with the group then you feel accountable to the group more than just to, to a manager in a one-on-one -on -one session. You're now saying, you know, to my entire team, I'm accountable for my work. You're accountable for your work. I think that also can be used in families as well to <laughs> help them be successful and kids get exactly. in less trouble. Uh, what's an agile transformational project team? Well, it's really a process and a team that helps 
the entire organization to think about being nimble um, to uh, instead of just reacting to a process, that they have more of an agile approach and leverage agile principles. There's something in the agile project management world, which, you know, I shared this in my book. You know, I'm a, a PMP certified project management professional as well as PFMP certified uh, portfolio management professionals. There's something called safe agile framework, which basically means I'm going to take not only just one team and make it agile, I'm going to take pockets of teams or the organization and make it agile. And I'm going to orchestrate the entire organization or group of a program or my portfolio. And we're going to manage it in an agile way. In other words, there's a certain cadence in which we do things. There's a certain way that we look at the big goal and have stopping points that we assess very quickly. Are we moving in the right direction? And are we giving the client, the customer, the business owner, the stakeholders what they need to be successful? And are we producing rapid results? But isn't that kind of like jazz music in general there, right? Like you say, you talk about the structure, but then you're able to move in different directions. But at the end of the day, you come out with this like amazing uh, piece out at the end of it. it. It really is. And one of the things that it requires is a, I would say, che everyone checking their ego at the door. And so what I mean by that is, although, you know, with, within j the jazz world, everyone is woodshedding on their own. In other words, they're practicing, they're purposefully practicing what I call deliberate practice, right? Um, they're doing that on their own, but when they come together, they have to check their ego at the door and go, how do we, how do we play this in such a way that it moves the audience to either be euphoric or, you know, uh, caught up in the moment. We want them to forget about their troubles. We want them to forget about that fight they had on the way. We, we really want to pull them in and kind of take them to another level um, emotionally and mentally. We have a question from the audience. Besides yes. this jazz philosophy for single institutions or teams, I'm curious about this movement program for startup communities and innovation hubs. Any thoughts or work programs, partners being done here combining jazz promotion and preservation with uh, startup hubs, creating and tapping into different sources of revenue to promote local startup hubs and culture? I don't know of a specific one like a, common, a Y Combinator or other um, you know, startup organizations that are using jazz in that way. Um, I think it's, it's a smart idea. I think it's a, a smart idea from the standpoint of, to me, um, the jazz metaphor is a perfect example of, again, that flexibility and agility where each of the musicians are pursuing mastery, but at the same time, they're able to put together a product or a service that meets the need of the market, even within the moment. Right. Um, and but I don't I don't know of one, a, a situation where there is a, um, a a startup situation that that is promoting that that combination of jazz and business at this time. I mean, besides the things that I've written, I know there's a, there are a few other books out there about jazz. I've actually written a course around this and there's an interactive app around it that, that um, people can use as well. Uh, I also see here. Um I do open mic blues where I write, this is from the audience. I do open yeah. mic blues where I write uh, my three song set while sitting at the bar. Then I give my first line lyric to the house band and tell them what style of blues songs 
it will be. And then off we go. And I adjust my song uh, to the band. What yeah. I have found is that I have first have to connect with the band, my team, and before I try and connect with the audience. Because when we are working as a team first, the audience connects to us rather than yeah. just me. And when that happens, it's magical. In jazz, yeah. it's team-oriented, but also the solo is more important. Does jazz lead to the same team focus that blues does? That's the question. Yes, it, it, exactly. I mean, it's it's the same concept. It's just, you know, one is, it's, Think of think of blues and jazz and classical as different dialects of music, right? Um, you know, music is music is the overall language, and then we have different dialects of that of that of that uh, of the uh, of the language. And so, whether you're playing blues or jazz or even classical, and I have examples of that. Um, when I, I'll share later about my my professor that I studied with in my, when I was doing my masters, who was a classical and jazz musician, and he combined the two. Interesting. Um, there's a guy here who started the Wistar Institute, a guy named Hilary Kaprowski, and he was a world famous uh, pianist, classical pianist. And he yes. said by being a musician, it helped him come up with formulations for drug discovery. Yes, it really does. I mean, it does help you to see things outside the box of because, again, you know, the idea of if I just have business training, then you know I'm, I'm looking through that paradigm, but if I have musical training or jazz training or this other experience, it's it's kind of like Southwest Airlines saying, okay, we're going to create, you know, we're going to fly planes, but now we're just going to fly one type of plane and we're going to use the hub and spoke model. Well, they kind of took different um, concepts and put them together in the airline industry and created, you know, Southwest Airlines. Same thing with FedEx; they created. You know, different. They took different models and put them together and created something kind of new, right? Within an industry by combining different things from other industries. Isn't that what entrepreneurs like? You know, great entrepreneurs uh, like Elon Musk and Steve Jobs. Um, they're kind of like orchestra leaders that pull together a whole group of people all playing different instruments and then manage to harmonize them. Is that how you exactly. view them? Exactly. That is exactly how I view them. Uh, you write about using improvised framework. Can you explain what that is and give an example? Sure. So the improvised framework is basically when I write um, or research a book or get ready to write a book, I use something called a thought leadership framework to write my books. In other words, I, I literally start off and I'm looking at uh, right brain, left brain. And so I always have, you know, metaphors. In the, in the book, you know, one of the major metaphors is jazz and music. And then I always have a model because it's easy for, for people who are right brain to get their head around a model. And so for me, when I thought about workplace jazz, it's like, well, you know, what could be the model? Well, to me, the model was, what do you do when you play jazz? Well, you improvise. So then I took the word improvise and I said, well, what are the, you know, you got the, you got the letters I-M-P-R-O-V-I-S-E. What does that stand for? Well, improving my skills, measuring uh, what matters, cultivating a positive attitude, risk or reward, open to feedback, visualizing the results, inspired by aspirations, surrendering to support and execution, uh, excellence and execution. So basically, I, I developed you know various concepts for each one of those letters. So it's basically an acronym. You know, it's taking the word improvise and making it an acronym for the concepts that I remember 
learning and demonstrating as a musician that have helped me in business. So I'm curious about this. Why are bass and drums important to a successful song? And what skills are represented by these instruments in developing culture and business plans? You talk about that. Do you remember, do, do, do you remember this song? It's all about that bass. Nah, <laughs> probably, probably other people listening know it because we have musicians obviously listening today. There was a very popular song back in around, I guess it was around 2015, 2016, um, by a group that was called All About That Bass and this guy's playing upright bass and it was almost like a uh, uh, it was almost like a 40s style music and band well here, the thing about the bass is and this is what I learned when I first started you know I was you know designated to play bass with the band my first band huh? was that I had to hold down the structure and rhythm of the song but based on the bass line I was playing it also created the culture of the song so in other words, if I'm if I'm playing a Michael Jackson song, and I'm let's you know you know you're doing something like that, that creates a different feel, a different vibe. But if I'm playing another rock song and it's you're doing that, that's a very different style and a feel. So the bass sets the culture. Every great company has great culture. Every great song has a great bass line. But the drum sets the cadence. It sets the plan. It sets the rhythm. So just like in a, in a great business, you're going to have weekly meetings. You're going to have daily meetings. You're going to have monthly meetings. You have uh, weekly and monthly reports. You're going to have a cadence of activity that has to happen to keep the business moving. Well, the drums, are. it's like that business plan. The drummer's there to, 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 to kind of synchronize the band and keep them moving in the same direction and giving them a, a real solid platform to, to 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 go after so when you combine those two you have a cultural style of the bass and you have a, a synchronized rhythmic plan of how we're going to conduct this song and that's basically you know culture and business plan when it comes to to, to business as well i have to say this is one of my more favorite interviews and i'm sorry that there's one of the authors that i interviewed josh linkner he's also a jazz music jazz musician and I think I need to connect the two of you um, because you could produce great music in a business sense as well. So I'll, have, I'll have to get you together with him. Um, I appreciate it. One of the audience members writes, like Gerald, I use jazz as a metaphor for business for many years. I'm a professional sax player. Uh, people get it during the session or workshop, but the structure and bureaucracy of their organization are such uh, that the lessons learned rarely translate to real life. They revert to the status quo when they return to work because their leaders uh, aren't on board. Without seeing your right. leaders supporting this approach and embracing the principles of jazz, improv, collaboration, listening, trust, and communication, it doesn't stick. So another uh, a, a question here is, we use music as part of our leadership curriculum. Right. Uh, one of the uh, audience on diversity and inclusion. If people appreciate different music genres, they can learn to appreciate different perspectives or better. Your comment yeah. on that. What's your comment on I, that? No, I totally agree. Uh, and I think that's a great metaphor for, for uh, showing and demonstrating diversity. Because, um, uh, you know, even though I write a lot about jazz, um, again, I study classical. 
um, I played jazz. I played show music. I played Broadway. I played um, ballets. I played some rock. Um, and so for me, I love music. And so if I hear a great bassist and a great song by Rush or, or Van Halen, I like that just as much as I like listening to a Gerald Albright or something from Earth, Wind & Fire or something from B.B. King. Those are all different are from, are from Yo-Yo Ma. You know, you hear Yo-Yo Ma play a, play a cello suite and he makes that thing sing and takes you to a whole other place. And so if music is good, regardless of the genre that it's played in, you're going to be moved by it. But it also helps with understanding the importance of diversity. I tell you one thing I think everybody would agree with is that if you listen, if you uh, are going into a stressful meeting and you play a certain piece of music, it adjusts your brain and, oh, and you become much more, uh, I guess, uh, successful in that meeting. Like you feel more positive, you feel good about it. And if you're having a bad day and you listen to the right music, it changes your whole uh, day and outlook on the day, right? Exactly. Music does that. And, and here's something that I learned because I ended up doing a, a certification with a, uh, a lady who eventually uh, passed away a couple of years ago. Unfortunately, her name was uh, Judith Glazer. She wrote the book Conversational Intelligence. And I was a part of a program with her for a couple of years called Becoming a Certified Conversational Intelligence Coach, which I did. In that, she taught the concept of we have a neurological uh, response to someone that we're talking to within less than 0.07 seconds of meeting that person and starting a conversation. In other words, our brain either starts admitting dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin, or adrenaline and, and cortisol based on just the vibe that their brain is giving our brain, and which comes from their intent for the conversation. And so basically, there's like this spiritual conversation that happens, or this chemical conversation that happens neurologically for us that it really has a major impact on us. And music music does the same thing. And again, that's why for me, I, when, I, when I do meditation, I listen to alpha, delta, theta wave music because just like two clocks, you know, if you put two clocks together and they're doing this, pretty soon they're going to synchronize. Well, if I'm listening to music and there's a rhythm and a vibration, then my brain is going to synchronize with the rhythm and the beat of that music. And so it's going to bring me down. Many times I'll take a nap in the middle of the day, a 30-minute nap, and I'll time it, and I'll put on an alpha wave music, and I may not fall asleep, or I may. But the, when 30 minutes when that clock goes off, I wake up, I am refreshed. Even if I can go to a deep sleep, simply because my brain had the opportunity to go and spend 20 to 30 minutes in alpha wave. It, re, it literally revitalizes me in the middle of the day and I'm ready to go again. You mentioned 10 things music teaches us. What are they and what are applicable to improving your chances of business success? Or maybe you just want to name a couple of them uh, and sure. say that. Sure. So, you know, in, in this part of the book, I wrote those because I in, in reflecting on my life. Again, I've been playing since I was 10 years old. <laughs> And I thought, well, what is what has music taught me about life? Uh, it's taught me to you know, work together with other people. That is really important to work together. 
Um, I can't just be a solo act by myself and be in my own little world. I need to engage with others. Um, there's different forms of communication. You know, there's it's like we have, you know, verbal, nonverbal, body language, and, you know, our facial communication. Um, there's music provides that different form, different types of communication. Um, life is about change. Music is about change. Good music is always changing, whether it's going up or down, slow or fast. You know, it, it, and life happens and things are constantly changing. Music happens. Things are constantly changing. Um, we have, depending on the, an event and depending on your interpretation of the event, everyone can walk away from it with a different perspective. I can listen to one song and I walk away feeling a one way about it and having a, a certain feeling about it. You can listen to the same song, but because of who you are, what you've experienced in your life, you walk away with a whole different experience. So I learned those concepts from being a musician that have really helped me. Um, and I think well, probably one of the most important ones is the power of perspective. You know, when you're listening to a good piece of music, um, if you listen to, um, let's say, Beethoven's Ninth, and you listen to the New York Philharmonic perform it, and then you listen to the San Francisco uh, Orchestra perform it, then you listen to, let's say, the, the London Philharmonic, they may have a very different interpretation. The notes are somewhat the same, but the vibe and the feel are different. And it's because of the conductor's perspective of that song and what it means to them. They're going to bring different things out about that music. And so we can hear the same things, but it's really about perspective. And, and, and music has taught me a lot about, you know, really looking for perspective in life. Uh, what can entrepreneurs learn from musicians considering that every new record and or album is like launching a new product and understand what your market wants to hear? So what, what can entrepreneurs learn from this? You know, I love this question because I would say musicians who are making a living in, 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 in music are the quintessential entrepreneur. Think about what happened during the pandemic. You know, a lot of different places were shut down. But what, that, what did that do for literally every musician out on the planet? They had to park. They had to figure out, okay, pivot. How do I make a living? Or what do I do for this year, two years, or however long this is going to go on before I can, you know, get out and start performing again? Many of them started recording their, their whole albums virtually. They started looking at, hey, this, I can use Zoom. I can use virtual. I can use social tools. I can use technology to get connect with my audience. Um, they had to rethink their marketing. They had to rethink, well, what's hot right now? What do people need? And they realized this is a great opportunity for me to create more content, more songs, more things that's going to inspire people because people are at home. I can be, I can let my hair down and be more real and do more, um, you know, let's say Facebook lives where they're just sharing who they are and, and, and endeared their, their following of their tribe close to them. So now as, as things are getting back to normal, they have a, a larger tribe. They, they've actually grown during this time when it actually could have set them back. So there's a lot that has to happen when they're producing a song, putting songs out. Obviously, they have to know how to build a tribe. They have to know how to market. They know how they, they have to put out PR. They have to um, do all the things that you would do if you're selling a bottle of Coke or Pepsi. Yeah, I think, uh, and I heard a lot of musicians, my daughter is very good friends with them. 
lead singer for uh, an up and coming hot group called The Score. And it turns out that during the pandemic, they are able to be more productive because they were kind of locked in uh, with their thoughts and started producing a lot of music. And a lot of musicians were like that. You have a lot. You have a list of questions about what musicians ask when developing a song, which I thought was interesting. What are the questions and how can you and how can those questions be used to enhance a business's chance of success? Excellent question. So some of the questions that I put in the book that, that musicians ask when they're putting together songs is, well, what's the hook of the song? You know, what is it? What is that? That that rhythm or that 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 verse or that word or that phrase that is going to pull people in and get them hooked to to the song. Um, what makes this song catchy? Is the song catchy? Um, are, are people tapping their toe to the song? Are they are they hearing it and they go start having a conversation? Um, why will people relate to the song? How do they relate to the song? Um, you know, how do we get these musicians in the room? You know, do we have the right people in the room? Um, are, are we hearing the drums? Are we hearing the bass? Are, are things uh, equalized or harmonized correctly? Um, does the song get ignored or played on radio? Um, uh, what are people listening to today that's really inspiring them? And so, in other words, it really it's almost like um, research and, and market research. And, and really, for musicians, it, it becomes more of a ready, fire, aim model. And what what I mean by that is they don't put out a song right away and put it on uh, on wax, right? What they do is they create a song, they go out and play it live, even at a small club, and they test it. Did the audience respond? Did they like it? Okay, they seem to like it, but we didn't get the response we wanted. So I tell you what, let's change this, let's change that, let's make some adjustments. Hey, let's play it again tonight. How did that go? Well, we got a better response. So then it becomes ready, fire, aim. And if you think about in business, and this is a lot what what happens with Agile now with the minimal viable product. It's ready, fire, get the product out there. Did people buy it? They didn't buy it? Am I getting any attention? Am I getting any traction? No. What do we need to adjust? And now we start adjusting, 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 adjusting. Oh, we're getting the bite. Okay, let's change that headline. Let's change this lead. Let's change this. And it's the same concept. And very much like beta testing products as well. When you're doing exactly. That. Yeah. One of the things you write uh, that we can learn from jazz musicians is that they get better by working with and learning from others. What is their process and how does that differ from any other type of musician? Well, it, it really doesn't differ from other musicians. And it really is a neurological process. And it's called mirror neurons. Every one of us have them. Animals have them. So it's basically, think of, think of jazz as a language. So as a child, when we learn the language that we speak, whether it's French, English, German, Portuguese, whatever language we speak as our primary language, um, we had expert speakers around us, mom, dad, brothers, sisters, siblings, and we heard the language. So we listened a lot. We saw them speaking the language. We began to figure out how to come up with words, and we didn't get them right. But no one chastised us because we didn't say certain words correctly. They kept working with us. And now, pretty soon, within a couple of years, we're having expert conversations or conversations with other experts, and they're bringing us up to their level. And so in jazz, jazz musicians 
when you're learning to play jazz, even let's say you're a classical musician and you want to go play jazz. Well, you first you need to listen to jazz because the way you phrase jazz compared to classical is very different. The way you play the notes and the way you connect the notes is different. The feel of the music is different. In classical, you're doing one and three or whatever the signature is. In jazz, you're doing the beats on uh, emphasis is on two and four. And so there's there's also a laid back feel to jazz compared to this upfront feel for classical. So you have to kind of get that in your body. You have to listen to that and feel like what that what happens there. Then you go, okay, so how do you play jazz? What's a jazz phrase? How do you play over these notes? So the only way to learn how to do that is actually imitating, just like we do as children. We imitate our, our parents. You know, the challenge with parenting is that the kids do what the parents do and not what they say, right? Because we're actually using the mirror neurons to imitate. And so it really boils down to use, leveraging the mirror neuron concept, which I write a lot more about in the book. Well, I, I, this was very interesting also to me. You had a lot of really cool stuff in this book, and, and, and everybody should get this book. They won't be able to put it down. Why don't jazz musicians focus on perfection, but on excellence? And what is the difference? Okay, perfection is, you know, you think about if I want to be perfect at something, that means I can't make any mistakes. I have to do it exactly perfect. I have to do it exactly right. There is not a musician in the world that plays a concert and gets every note right. Period. Never happens. What they do, though, is that they focus on mastery. So for a musician, it's it's kind of like the journey of, I want to be an apprentice, I become a journeyman, then I become the master. But even as a master, I'm constantly learning and constantly growing. And so when you understand the concept that being a great musician is about learning to master the instrument, and in jazz, it's funny, you can take a bad note and make a good one. Because if you're playing and you land on a bad note, well, the next like literally the next half a note, but if you resolve it, it's a good note and it's in tune. So if you go back and play the bad note again and come back to the good note, pretty soon it sounds like you meant to do that, even if it was a mistake. And so it's all about perspective, all about how do you um, approach the process. And it really comes down to the concept of mastery, that the jazz musicians focus on mastery. Interesting. Um, what does it take to be a virtuoso musician and how can we take those lessons to accomplish the same in the business world? Okay, so so um, a, a good friend of mine who I wrote about in the book, and his name is Mike Rayburn. Uh, and Mike was a, is an amazing guitar player. He's played at Carnegie Hall 10 times. Um, we we're really good friends. And when we I wrote about this and, had, and talked to him about it, the thing that he said for him to become a virtuoso, and I think about for myself, it was two things. One, you decide to become a virtuoso. And then two, you then pursue becoming a virtuoso. So the decision is, am I going to just get really good and then chill? Right? If I get really good at playing and um, I, I can, you know, I can breeze through a, a show and I don't have to think about it anymore. Well, pretty soon I start plateauing. And then pretty soon I start coasting. But notice, Coasting only happens downhill. You don't, you don't get better coasting. Right. So the only way I can become a virtuoso is that, one, I make a decision that I want to be a virtuoso. I want to be the best that I can be. And then, two, well, how do I do that? So you start asking yourself questions like, 
well, what does that mean to be a virtuoso? Who else are, is a virtuoso on my instrument? How did they become a virtuoso? Who did they study with? How many hours did they practice? What did they practice? How did they rest? What did they eat? What did they listen to? What did they think? And so success leaves clues. And so by modeling other virtuosos, you discover the path of becoming a virtuoso. And once you get, once you, you get on that path and you get to a certain level, you realize, okay, it's going to be hard to find a teacher who's doing what I'm doing, but you can always find a coach who's been further than you've been. And whether they are remote or right there beside you, they can guide you through the process of, you know, improving or increasing your, your virtuoso uh, journey. In your book, you mentioned one particular reason by, uh, why teams perform at a lower level, lack of the mastering of their skills. How do you test their skills before embarking on a project so you know whether you're up for the task because most people will say yes and then try to wing it or if they think they can handle it uh, but don't have the right uh, level of skill to do the job. So how do you kind of pre-screen this? Okay, so I thought about that question and um, you know, as I reflect on it and I thought about what I wrote in the book and then just life in general, and how music works. Here's how it works with music. It's a referral system. Right? If I'm going to, if, if if someone's going to uh, play, let's say Gerald Albright's putting a new band together, or Stanley Clark is putting a new band together, or let's say um, um, Grover, when he was alive, Grover Washington's putting a new band together. Uh-huh. Sure. Grover doesn't, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't go out and say, um, whoever's looking for a job in music, I'm, I'm going to have auditions and you come on in and, and perform. And even if they did, you know, there are bands that do auditions, but normally after the audition, they go, who knows this guy? Who's playing with this guy? And most of the time, it's a referral system. The majority of the time, it's a referral system. Here's, you know, hey, I'm looking for a good bass player. Oh, call Gerald Beasley. Well, who is Gerald Beasley? Oh, he played with Grover Washington for 10 years. He's done 10 albums. He's done all of this amazing work. Then I'm not going to have to work through, well, who is this person? Do they have the skill set? Because the majority, and that's why when you when you hear, you know, various bands, and you, you, you hear Dave Cause is going on the road with Gerald Auburn and these other two horn players, and they got a whole new band. And they sound like they've been playing together forever. Well, it's because everybody's been vetted. They know they're not bringing some new kid on the block that just finished school at Berkeley College of Music, and that's their first gig. Everyone who comes in that band has been tried, true, tested, and referred to them. So they know, hey, we can play slow, fast, or whatever, and these guys can handle it. So it really is a referral system more than anything else. And so when it comes to business, I think we need to be much more um, a referral process. Now, honestly, there there are times where, you know, you take applications and you hire people that you need to hire. But I know when I hire, um, let's say, a service company or someone to do a certain job for me, I'm looking for a referral. I'm looking for someone who's worked with that company, that person. You know, do they have a proven track record? Because if I do the if I do my due diligence and I, I use a referral process, I know I'm going to get someone who's not going to waste my time or my money. I'm just curious, Gerald. How about 
from a diversity perspective. I mean, especially, um, you know, you look in sports, there would be no black football coaches if all these white guys who own these teams based on a referral network. So how do you make sure that you have a diverse group, even if the people don't know those people making those decisions? Because you know there are people out there are super talented that just you don't know who they are. Right. And so, so, so one, you have to be purposeful about diversity. But even, even with that, if you think about let's go back to the football example, which is a great example. Every head coach that's in the NFL right now, you can trace them back to a number of coaches that taught in the past. No question. Right? Yeah. Because they were either their, 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 um, their support staff and so on. And so no one comes to the NFL as a head coach just because I fill out application and I have so much money and I'm, you know, I'm just going to be a head. No, you have to be groomed. You have to. So, so there has to be two things that happen. I still believe in the referral process, right? I still, well, it's three things. I believe in the referral process. I believe in the mastery journey process, but the third thing that has to happen is there has to be an intent. It has to be intentional that, you know, I want a diverse coaching um, a group or, or I want a, a diverse team or, or, or whatever the case may be. And, and, and honestly, the best teams are diverse because now I'm bringing different backgrounds and different ways, modes of thinking that are going to expose me to different ways we, that we can be successful. And it really creates to me that ultimate agile transformational team because now I have all these diverse mindsets. You, we had uh, Chef uh, Hyken on our show, author of The Cold of the Customer, and you mentioned, and you mentioned in your book a section on risk and reward. Chef talked about putting himself out there and improvising his skill, uh, improving his skill, uh, set by not putting barriers up front. What is your advice to people to remove those barriers when they feel they will embarrass themselves? Because I think that's what stops a lot of people is the is the idea that they can embarrass themselves. Right. I was listening. I was watching uh, a show on the NFL channel and it was the Arizona coach, um, Bruce Aarons. And he made a comment. He said, no, uh, no risk it, no biscuit. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And so, well, what do you mean? No risk it, no biscuit. Do you just put yourself out there and go, hey, I'm going to go, you know, I have the money. So I'm going to go rent Carnegie Hall and. I just started playing. I'm going to do a concert and sell tickets. No, that's, that's not, that's, that's stupidity. But if I, and so let's, let's use the world of comedians. You take Jerry Soundfeld, you take any of the great comedians, even at their status now, if they want to do a, let's say HBO special, they may have an idea what they want to do or some bits they want to do, but what they do is they then go to local clubs in their neighborhood that's safe and quiet where no one's going to take them. You know, Pavarazzi's going to take pictures of them. Jerry Seinfeld's working on a piece of content, and, well, now it's on the front page of the New York Times or something. He can go there and share, you know, his bit, test it out, and go, well, that joke didn't work. This didn't work. That didn't work. In other words, start small. Start with incremental approaches to things that you, if you're moving into a new area, whether it's a new career, a new skill, or new whatever, don't try to put yourself out there too fast. 
but put yourself out there. Ready, fire, and then aim, aim. Get feedback, aim, aim. Oh, wow, that joke worked, that joke worked. Six months later, I'm ready for the HBO special. It may be a year later, I'm ready for the HBO special. Now I can get out and do, you know, take the big risk, but it's not really a risk anymore. It's because it's very calculated. And I thought through the process. So I would say that's how musicians are as well. They're not going to go out and put an album out if they know that they're not ready and the band's not ready. So they go and they will work on the material in a local club until they get the responses from the audience that they want. Then they go and take it to a bigger audience. Then they go into the studio and then they go on the road with it. And now everybody loves it, but it started two years ago. We only have time for a couple more questions. By the way, Gerald, I could sit here listening to you the rest of the day. Uh, I just so enjoyed it. Um, you wrote about process on how to handle unrealistic expectations, which many entrepreneurs and consultants have to deal with. Yeah. What process do you use? First thing I do is, and I write this in my book, and I said the first thing you have to do is you have to manage your stress. Because when you, you, know, when you have unrealistic expectations put on you, it it um, activates your amygdala. And your amygdala is that small almond part of your brain that says, fight or flight. You know, there's a, there's a saber-toothed tiger in the jungle or, or in the bush, and I got to get out of here. And so you got to first calm yourself down and go, wait a minute, okay, this is what they're asking me for. And so a, an example I wrote about in my first book called 15 Days to Liftoff is where I was brought into a large Department of Transportation state agency they had about 14,000 projects and a $16 billion budget. And I was brought in as a referral of a consultant who could help them with this problem. The CIO looks at me and goes, we need to have this done, or I need to have a solution to this in 15 days by this date. And, then, and this is like the first meeting and the room is crowded. So I look at him and I says, well, do you mean production? He goes, no, not production. Okay, development? Yes. Um, does it have to be a hundred projects or can it be one? Okay. So what I need is I need a proof of concept. It can be one. So basically, I, I, we're, long story short, I was able to talk him through the process to say, okay, in 15 days, we're going to build this system. We're going to test the old system, talk to the new system, and we're going to prove this concept. And if you have that, you can go back to the commissioner and say, it works. Is that what you need? Yes, that's what I need. If you give me that, we're good. Day 14, we delivered it because now the team knew exactly what our, our boundaries were, what our process was, and we worked on it every day, and we worked strategically together with a detailed plan, and we invited him to the daily meetings if he wanted to attend. So by doing that, it quelled everyone's amygdala, got everyone focused, and we were able to deliver as a brand new team on that deliverable and meet their goal. And that was in 2014. I'm still there on retainer today. Congratulations. That's a long, that's a good run. So my last question to you is, and we only have about a minute. If you yeah. had to deliver one message based on what you learned from all the folks you interviewed and being in the music industry, what would that be? I would say embrace the journey of mastery. And what I mean by that, with embracing the journey of mastering your craft is that Make a decision to be a virtuoso in your area, whether you're writing a book, whether you are a developer, whether you're a, an executive or a business analyst or 
a podcaster, make a decision to be a virtuoso in what you do. In other words, learn everything you can about what you do. Get feedback, record yourself, go back and listen to it, study your performance, watch tape, kind of like the football players. Uh, Focus on deliberate practice. Be purposeful in practicing what you work on. Find models, find people who are experts at what they do that you want to do and figure out how did they get there and model them. See yourself doing what they're doing. Enjoy the discovery and focus on becoming more than just accomplishing. Because once you accomplish a major goal, the, 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 goal, the goal of that goal is who you became. Not just accomplishing the goal, but it's the value is who did I have to become to accomplish that goal? So, Gerald, I'd be remiss in not saying this before I thank you for this show is that when you come to Philadelphia, I know my girlfriend is going to want to play with you. So you guys, you have to come to Philadelphia so we can host you sometime for dinner and put uh, you on in her and her piano and you and your different instruments that you can play together so we can have a little mini concert. And maybe the Excellent. folks here would want to hear it and we could do it live on Facebook or something along those lines. You were terrific. I really enjoyed the book. I would look forward to it. Thank you so much. Well, everybody have a great weekend. Please try to stay cool and uh, look forward to seeing you all next uh, Friday. Have a great day. All right. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.